This is What's Next from American Security Project. I'm Maggie Feldman-Pilch. Today I'm joined by Brigadier General Dave McGinnis, former, or I guess retired defense, uh, senior defense official and retired um, Brigadier General from the U.S. Army National Guard. General McGinnis, thanks for being here. Thank you, Maggie. It's a pleasure. So I'm, I'm quite excited about this interview because as most people have probably figured out by now, you and I just got back from Cuba. Yes, we did. Um, so as many know already, ASP took a delegation of six retired flag officers, one of which included you, um, on a track two trip to Havana, Cuba. And by my account, we had a wonderful time. Um, I hope yours too. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, so let's start at the very beginning in terms of why did you want to go to Cuba? I have never had any work related to the uh, Western Hemisphere, uh, at least Latin America and Central America. Uh, so I had a relative open mind, and I've heard so much about Cuba from so many sources that uh, I, was, um, I wasn't sure what the right answer was. Uh, we've had the, uh, a number of politicians from the South and from uh, Florida um, uh, wanting to uh, continue to punish Cuba for their, for their uh, human rights violations. And we've had other people who, uh, including the former president, who thought that uh, the Cold War had been over for 30 years and it was time to take another look, uh, over, well overdue uh, look at, uh, at our policy towards Cuba. So it, was a, it, was a, it seemed like intriguing. Um, and I knew um, many people on the delegation, and I've uh, been with them before in other, other, in other scenarios and other events, and so I thought it would be a good thing to do. And what did you expect to find in Cuba or not find? Well, I expected to find 1954 all over again. <laughs> uh, some small towns in America may still be there, uh, in Appalachia and other places, and, and, and I've been through them, and uh, uh, everything I've heard from the old cars to the impact of the embargo, uh, I really expected to see uh, uh, 1954 all over again. Uh, I was greatly surprised I didn't see that, except in one place, uh, and that was Meyer Lansky's hotel that we visited. <laughs> That's right. uh, that the Cuban government is, uh, has taken over and is uh, re, uh, restoring in mm-hmm. its 1954 um, motif. Uh, and uh, it was fun to go back to early Las Vegas uh, on that little visit of a few minutes when we got a tour from the, from the manager. But seriously, I was really surprised uh, uh, within the first 10 minutes of the ride in from the airport. Uh, I was impressed by the cleanliness of everything. Um, the cleanliness of the streets, uh, rather dilapidated homes, but were very clean. Mm-hmm. Uh, the people appeared very proud uh, and, uh, and industrious. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that continued to, I, I saw that throughout the trip, uh, which was really impressive. And they're not in 1954. I think they're very much in, uh, in 2017, in spite of our best efforts uh, with the embargo and with other other ways to limit their progress. 
So we did get a chance to, you know, drive around, obviously, from meeting to meeting. We did have some free time. But this was, in fact, a, a true track, too, right? Our, our schedule was pretty packed. We met with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. We met with the Ministry for Foreign Trade and, direct, and uh, Investment. We met with the Ministry of Tourism. We had a chance to go out and tour um, the Port of Mariel, which is their uh, economic zone, their free trade zone. And we also met <clears throat> with the Ministry of Interior. So what did you take away, you know, kind of generally from these meetings um, in terms of where U.S.-Cuba relations are and where they could be? I was really impressed. Um, Like the basic visit, uh, I had some uh, concerns about how we would be received. Mm -hmm. Uh, I knew that uh, from talking before we left to the Cuban ambassador here in Washington, uh, it seemed like that uh, they would like to talk to us and they would like to give us an opportunity to find out what's real and what's not. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I still didn't know how we would be received by the, by the, uh, by the key leaders of the di- different, uh, different ministries. And from the beginning, I was, I was really taken back. Uh, I've never been anywhere, uh, even though I've traveled as a public official, even in the United States, where... I had four executives meet me at the airplane, Um, and the foreign ministry from the very start and the immigration uh, folks from the uh, Ministry of the Interior were very accommodating, overly accommodating, uh, and very warm, Um, and very professional, by the way. The, the, uh, uh, The immigration folks were very professional, but they were also very warm and very accommodating. Mm -hmm. Um, And from that point on, every meeting, every every uh, session we had, mm-hmm. whether it was formal or informal, I saw this progression from a high degree of formality, mm-hmm. which you expect between government uh, government uh, uh, officials, mm-hmm. and towards a, a, a really dramatic inform, informal, informal relationship by the time we ended. I don't think there was any meet, there wasn't any meeting, where we didn't spend a lot of time after we stepped back from the table talking to people and chatting with people from the different ministries, Um, even the interior ministry, um, which, and we were kind of disappointed that we couldn't spend more time with them because the the schedule just wouldn't let us, but I know that they wanted to spend more time with us. Yeah. So one of the things, you know, since we've come back to D.C., and we'll get into a little bit more of, you know, the follow-up from our trip, but... Uh, before we went to D.C., or before we left D.C., and since we've been back, there's been a lot of questions about, you know, retired flag officers going to Cuba. And on this trip, we didn't meet with dissidents, right? Members of the ASP staff, myself included, have met with dissidents previously, but that's not what this trip was about. But there are real human rights concerns in Cuba. Um, it is a dictatorial regime. You know, that that was clear to us, I think, throughout the entire trip. Um, and I'm curious... In that regard, you know, in somebody who who spent time in Vietnam, um, what were you expecting and what did you see and what do you say to people who have concerns about the Cuban government's human rights record and, you know, is that enough reason not to engage with them? Uh, well, to answer your last question first, I think it's, it's folly not to engage with the Cubans and I don't think it's... Uh, it's as legitimate as some people would like to make it as a reason to uh, to deny intercourse between sovereign nations. Mm-hmm. Um, 
it's rather immature view in, in, my, in, my, in my mind. Having been around uh, national security for about 50 years, uh, I've learned a little bit. And one of the things I learned is that it's, it's the wrong thing for any country to dictate how other people should live. Um, and to try to set a standard based on our views and our values um, and insist that they meet it. Um, uh, so I, I didn't go over with, 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 that, uh, with, with, with that mindset that we needed to change these people. What I didn't see is I didn't see what I've seen from China, North Korea. I didn't see armed people on every corner. Mm-hmm. I didn't see people watching very closely. Mm-hmm. We were not handled. Sure. We didn't have handles with us. We had an escort uh, from the foreign ministry who were with us when we really needed to have an escort. The rest of the time, we weren't right. being followed. We weren't being tracked. We weren't being bugged uh, in our rooms. Um, so, uh, and, I, and I think that the, the comment about, not only the comments about not meeting with a dissonance, um, and also the comments about retired, what, what business do retired military officers have in, 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 in taking a trip like this? Um, my view is they're the best source sure. for the American people. Uh, we're trained to be objective. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're trained to uh, enter into a into, into wide variety of situations, do an assessment, um, and, make, uh, and, and come to some conclusions. Uh, and also trained to be able to present those conclusions to uh, policymakers uh, in our gov- in our country in, who are civilians, sure. because we have civilian control of the military. So that's what we're trained to do. And I thought it was great. Uh, it was also extremely beneficial to have uh, a group of us go mm-hmm. with a broad spectrum of experience, uh, both in uniform, all the way up through, uh, I think all of us have been all the way up through the senior leadership, worked for the senior leadership of, uh, of, the, uh, of the Department of Defense mm-hmm. in uniform. Mm-hmm. And then outside of uniform, um, we have held positions um, where we were senior leaders or we were um, analysts and, and, uh, and, uh, and, um, and professors who were pre- who were uh, you know analyzing and 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 and, um, and researching mm-hmm. uh, policy for the senior leadership. Mm-hmm. I mean, every one of us have probably met the Department of Defense and everybody in the Joint Chiefs right. of Staff at least once or twice. Um, and going back in history, probably got a lot of time with with their predecessors. So um, I think it's a it was a great opportunity. I viewed it as a great opportunity. I really appreciate ASP did it. Uh, because God knows we need uh, we need objective uh, nonpartisan uh, people to help guide our foreign policy. Obviously, there's <clears throat> a, a broad range of frac- factions in the United States, um, intellectually and politically, um, who believe very strongly in one way or the other. Mm-hmm. There's also a large group of individuals who um, have been led by those people who really aren't attuned to. Um, uh, the world outside of their county or their city or, or their state. And so the credibility that we and other, other senior military officers bring to these types of uh, assessments and analysis uh, is necessary to balance um, the, the spectrums, uh, political spectrums, um, and come up with a common view for the country, because that's really what we need with all the countries we deal with. Mm-hmm. 
So you mentioned, you know, of course, flag officers and military, generally speaking, are, are trained to observe, assess, analyze, and present, you know, some information and in, in objectives. So for you, what is your, what is your bluff, your bottom line up front on Cuba, having done this trip? My bottom line up front on Cuba, uh, as I came back, on my way back, flying back to Miami, was... Cuba is not a strategic threat to the United States. Cuba is an array of strategic opportunities. Um, yet they are under the thumb of a of a congressionally enacted embargo mm-hmm. that is as abusive um, and and equally as outrageous. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the opposite direction as our embargoes are on North Korea and and um, and Iran. Right, and I know one thing that uh, you took away from the trip is you had a conversation with Vince, our translator, who was wonderful, about health care in Cuba. And I believe you and, and General Eaton, another one of our delegation members, kind of came away from this conversation really recognizing the human rights impact our embargo has on the Cubans, that he went, uh, Vince is a Cuban-American, and, and went to a healthcare provider in Cuba just for a checkup. And, you know, they wrote him a prescription, and the doctor looked at him and laughed and said, I'm writing you this prescription, and this is what I would give you if we had it, but I can't give it to you because of the embargo. Oh, absolutely. It's not, it, the, medical, the medical arena alone is uh, the impact of the embargo on their medical system mm-hmm. in terms of denial of care. Mm-hmm is a human rights issue that transcends everything that the Cuban government may, may be doing to their people today. Mm-hmm. Um, and for a good period of time after the end of the Cold War. Um, the irony of this is the Cubans are also reaching out to us medically right. and are working with us uh, through WHO, the World mm-hmm. Health Organization. They found avenues to reach out to the United States on issues that are important to them and issues that are important to us. They were the only country that picked up and went to us with Africa to deal with the Ebola outbreak. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a strong statement on its own. They're working with CDC on a number of different issues that's important to CDC and them. They're working with NIH on cancer and diabetes. Mm-hmm. Um, they're working with FDA on a cancer drug and mm-hmm. a diabetes a treatment. Um, this is not a country that's building missiles to point at us or building bombs to drop on our cities. This is a comp- country that's reaching out. Even the much dreaded and much maligned uh, Interior Department, right. which you can equate in this country to everything from the CIA to the Immigration and, and Coast Guard, um, have been working with us for a long time uh, using, as an example, the international channel of Interpol. Um, they have done a number of things uh, on a regular basis since 9-11 to help us in the fight against terrorism. They've even helped us identify threats against our leadership in the mm-hmm. United States. That's a pretty strong statement for a country who 30 years ago, or 50 years ago, at least in my lifetime, was targeting their leaders for assassination. Right. Um, there's a lot that they've forgotten. 
in a very gracious way. Forgiven, I should. Not forgotten, yeah. but forgiven in a very gracious way. And um, so that's why it's, it, it's such a, the embargo is such a folly. Yeah. Um, because there's, uh, there's just um, the, the impact beyond, as an example, we were talking with some folks there who are expatriates uh, from different countries. And uh, we don't, they don't have enough milk for baby formula for that's their infants. Right. That, to me, is a human rights issue. Um, expatriates travel overseas to bring back diapers for their children. Yeah. Uh, this is a this is another example of 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 the, of the human rights impact of the embargo that absolutely needs to stop. Sure. So you know, as we've talked about, we really saw the impact, the human rights impact of the embargo on the Cuban people, not the Cuban government, but the Cuban people. And as you just alluded to, you know, through our conversations, especially with the Ministry of Interior, came to better understand the specifics of why this is a national security interest, why this is a national security issue. Um, so maybe if you can, I, I know we talked about, you know, these eight areas that the Ministry of Interior kind of outlined for us, um, everything from cyber to counterterrorism to immigration, to border uh, patrol, to search and rescue. What was that meeting like for you, and how did it help you to kind of better define the national security argument here? Well, I've never never really was aware, other than the fact that I know they had a relationship with our Coast Guard. Mm -hmm. I really wasn't aware of the extent that they had been working with us, Mm -hmm. uh, and especially through the Coast Guard channel and through the Interpol channel both of which they are basically international channels that are outside the, uh, outside the embargo uh, limitations. So uh, they're not violating anything and we're not violating anything. Uh, but the working with the Coast Guard on, on, on such an array of activities from uh, managing uh, natural disasters, mm-hmm. uh, preparing for and managing uh, man-made disasters uh, that have significant environmental impact uh, like we've seen in the Gulf in the past. Uh, they're very attuned to that, very sensitive to that. The trafficking of humans, uh, the trafficking of drugs, mm-hmm. um, the uh, extradition uh, between both countries, uh, normal law enforcement relations between both countries, counterterrorism relations between right. both countries, because they believe that there are terrorism terrorists targeting them uh, to this day from the United States. And I think that they may have a good probable cause to believe that still. So um, they came up with eight areas after President Obama's visit mm-hmm. uh, where they put together, we've put together with them four working groups. Uh, these are executive level discussions, so they're not inside or prohibited by the embargo. But they're limited in the fact that you can't exchange technology, you can't exchange funds. Right. Um, one classic example of that uh, with the Interior Department, uh, with their ministry and the, and the Interior uh, Department of their ministry uh, uh, is Interior Ministry is the um, uh, having the the appropriate. Uh, security technology at their airports yeah this is something that came up on the hill right right it came up on the hill with the uh, chairman of the subcommittee uh, a very mm-hmm. articulate uh, uh, concern uh, 
totally objective, no mm-hmm. political leading at all. They just don't have the right stuff. Uh, my response to him was, and to uh, um, to his staff, uh, was, well, that's because the embargo, they can't buy anything except from China. Right. And basically everything they have is from China. So it doesn't meet our standard. Uh, so there's some of the limitations that uh, that uh, uh, that the embargo has put on on the ability for them to comply with our desires. Interesting. Um, and uh, I don't think people really thought about that. There's a lot of other technology that they would like to have in the law enforcement arena that would help them not oppress their people, but right. help them deal but- on an even on an even uh, keel with us on international issues right, that are common to us. We're talking about, you know, the technology you're talking about right now, we're not talking about, like you said, technology to oppress people. We're talking about technology... To, to detect. To detect, to screen people screen for detect. airport security. Right, and baggage and right. cargo and, and things like that. They do have a screening capability. Uh, we observed it at, yeah. the, at the mural port when they do screen the containers... But that technology isn't up to the same standard that we're using at the Port of Virginia or the Port of Bayonne because yeah. it's Chinese technology that simply isn't, isn't at the level that it ought to be. Right. Um, and they would love to have our stuff to do that with. Right, which so. is both a security win, an economic win for oh, you know, companies buying, buying, selling, making that technology and increasing our ability to trade. I remember one thing we learned you know, on our way down was that Something like 93% of wheat um, on the island is imported from, I believe, Latvia and France. And you just kind of stare blankly because, wow, that's a really, really far way to go for some wheat. When you could come to the United States for wheat, for soybeans, for corn, for beans, for meat. You know, there's, there's... not a lot of meat on the island. There's, no, there's very little meat on the island. And, and that's another thing that the embargoes denied, uh, a, a balanced diet for those right. people. Um, I, I would think there would be some people in the United States that would consider that a human rights issue as well. Absolutely. Um, they're not starving, but they don't have a good diet. Right. Not, but that's, part of the, that's probably a challenge to their medical care as well. Sure. Um, but uh, yeah, we the biggest the, the breadbasket of the world when you want to talk about all those legumes and all those grains yeah. is the United States, not Latvia, and, <laughs> and not Latvia. And while it helps the Latvian economy, certainly, I'm sure uh, having a market, um, it's more expensive, a lot more expensive to get it here. Uh, so the price per bushel is is exorbitantly high compared to what it would be for us. And here we are storing it and giving it away Yeah. Um, when we could be giving it to them. Sure. Um, the other thing is some of their products. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they make great honey. Yeah. Great molasses. Great uh, coffee. Great coffee. And they have the ability to, of course, we have the, we have the big political issue with the sugar. Right. Um, because we, we grow a lot of sugar, too. Mm-hmm. But there's a tremendous opportunity if you look at the island and the island's geophysical makeup mm-hmm. um, there's a tremendous opportunity to have a great partnership in agriculture mm-hmm. where they can grow things that we can't that we currently import from as far away as Chile and and and, and Argentina and and Venezuela in the, in our off season that could be grown uh, in Cuba uh, there's a tremendous opportunity for animal husbandry in Cuba. Yeah. Um, we could solve their milk problem overnight. Yeah. Um, 
and uh, just by importing some of the some of the best bulls that, and, and cattle that we have in this country and let them let them run with it. Yeah. So there's a lot of opportunity there to uh, to make their life better and to provide wonderful markets for us. Sure, sure. And you know we've talked a, a little bit about what has surprised you, um, and we've talked about the embargo, and we've talked about border security and cybersecurity and that kind of thing, but. One point that you've brought up to me, you know, prior to us recording this podcast is that the opportunities for the U.S. when it comes to security, foreign policy, geopolitics are not, and in relation to Cuba, are not limited to those eight items we discussed with the Ministry of Interior. And you just mentioned Venezuela. Yes. Um, And as we know and was kind of reconfirmed for us with our meetings with the ambassador and, and on the trip, Cuba really is the gateway to an enormous portion of our hemisphere that we've just ignored and have a terrible reputation in. We've ignored our hemisphere since John Kennedy was president, uh, literally. Um, The only time we've had any interest was when uh, the Soviets were uh, uh, building up uh, another colony in Nicaragua. Sure. And our interest there was was totally misguided as much as it was with uh, deciding how to treat Cuba uh, both before and after the uh, the end of the Cold War. Um, Cuba has a very, very professional bureaucracy. Absolutely. That was the other thing that impressed me. Uh, and a lot of them are women, by the way. That's a lot right. of the senior leadership are women. And many young women. In and many of young power. women. I mean, they're, they're the third generation away from the revolution. Mm-hmm. They're well educated. They're worldly. They're real politic. And uh, if we had them um, as, a, as a collaborator mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and a, friendly, uh, a friendly government, mm-hmm. uh, it would open the door to a lot of the inherent social and political issues of Central and South America. Absolutely. Uh, we talk about it being a dictatorship. They are a dictatorship. Um, yeah, they got one guy in charge. and uh, Who's and, going and, to leave in February 2018. He's going to leave. He's going to leave in 18. And they'll bring in some other individual, I'm sure, uh, who will, but he's not going to be the absolute power that either Fidel or Raul were. Mm-hmm. And... Their process today, when I was talking to, to the different ministries, uh, I asked them, um, how does the party work? How do people bubble up in the party and, and, and get leadership positions? And uh, it was interesting because even though it, um, it's nowhere akin to China, it's nowhere akin to any of the old communist, uh, mm-hmm. communist countries, um, I was really surprised. They have local committees. Yeah. And those local committee members are actually elected right. by the people in their communities. And there are dissidents who can run and yes. can be elected, yes. as we learned. Anyone can run, although some people who sure. are on this extreme fringe, like they would be here, probably aren't supported by the party. Right. And I'm sure that the Republicans and Democrats don't support a lot of people who want to run for office either Yeah. in this country. So as we move forward... Those people then, those committees at the local level who are elected by their, their, their neighbors and friends, then decide and elect among them who's going to move up to the provincial level. So there is a little bit of, you know, there's not, this is not totally a totalitarian state. Right. 
there is a process. Right. And these people are comfortable with that process. To go back to one of my earlier comments, right. it's working. And the, most of the people are happy. Right. We didn't see. We, you know, we went to um, uh, uh, one of our, one of our group um, articulates it the best, but we had some free time uh, in the second day. And our meeting with the, with the foreign ministry and the tourism ministry generated, we didn't meet with the cultural ministry, but the cultures ministry heard, out, heard about it and suggested that we go see this community center that was a community center. It wasn't a government center. Right. It was built in an old abandoned building that had no roof, had no insides. It was just had four walls. Right. That was restored by the local community with their money, not with yeah. government money, with their own money. And it still needed a lot of work, but it had a roof, it had a floor, and it kept them out of the elements. Yeah. Uh, we went to see a dance troupe yeah. that also... That, that practiced um, original Cuban dancing and mm-hmm. original Cuban music. Mm-hmm. And they danced to the original Cuban music. Right. And we were absolutely astounded by the, the professionalism of these people. Um, late teens yeah. to young 20s, young to mm-hmm. mid-20s. They'd gone all over the world. Uh, they'd, been in, in my, they'd been in Florida. They'd been in Mexico. They'd been in Korea. They'd been in Europe. Uh, very professional people who were from that community, and who were the product of this director who, is, who is, is the master of Cuban music, at least that's the impression I got, or one of the masters of yeah. original Cuban music. But walking out after we were done watching their rehearsal, uh, there were about 70 or 80 young kids, young, most of them girls, mm-hmm. with their mothers, waiting to come in, all excited, waiting to come in to go to dance lessons. Yeah. And as we walked down the street on the other side of this building, there was a group of little boys in their, in their judo geese mm-hmm. waiting to go in to take a judo class, just like you'd see in any community center in the United States yep, um, or any dance school in the United States or judo school in the United States. And they were happy, and the parents were happy. Uh, right. And this wasn't the upscale part of... Havana, right. quite frankly. It was it was closer to the barrio than it was to the upscale part of Havana. So uh, that was really, that was a, a tremendous, tremendously impressive, uh, impressive uh, uh, event to all of us. Yeah. That these people are doing this and living and manage to, managing to maintain their culture and maintain a social existence and educate their kids in the arts, despite the fact that we're denying them access to the international finance community. Yeah. That just to me was totally contradictory. So as we move towards the end of our podcast, you know, we typically ask everybody the same final question, and that's what's next. So in the context of U.S.-Cuba relations, what do you hope is next? What I hope is next is a realization on the part of the congressional leadership and the new administration that President Obama may have made a big mistake. Um, on how and when, rather, and how he opened Cuba. Mm -hmm. Because it fell way short on what needed to be done. Mm -hmm. And uh, taking the attitude out of this that if Obama was involved, it was bad, Mm -hmm. uh, and taking a look and saying, well, no, you know, Obama probably screwed this thing up, and we can make it better. Mm -hmm. We, the Republicans and Democrats... Um, of the House and Senate, and we, the uh, the, the the members of the uh, 
of the Trump administration can really take advantage of this, this opportunity and run with it and create those bilateral, a bilateral relationship that President Trump talked about during the campaign and start it with an easy trip not far from his Florida White House. Uh, he could probably take a boat ride over yeah, there and do it. he could row. Yeah, and, um, but that's what I think needs to happen, and I would love to see it happen, because if it does, I think it will open, it will change our view uh, of, the, um, of the Western Hemisphere, but it will also change how the gov- other governments of the Western Hemisphere operate. I think that's a perfect place to stop. General Great. McGinnis, thanks for, for coming. You're welcome. This has been What's Next from American Security Project. I'm Maggie Feldman-Pilch.